In this week's show, our guest is Rabbi Samantha Safran, who holds a Master of Arts in Hebrew Letters, as well as her rabbinical title from Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. She's originally from Great Neck, New York. She studied classics and philosophy at Calgate University before entering the Jewish professional world. During her time at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, she served as a Jewish advisor on several college campuses. She's currently the Assistant Director of Jewish Living and Learning at the Houston Jewish Community Center. This summer, she taught a class called The Jewish Messiah, in which she examined the key classic and contemporary Jewish texts to shed some light on the relationship between the Jewish people, the anticipated Messiah, and the idyllic time of his or her arrival. Can you share with us how the concept of the Messiah developed in Jewish thought? So that's a very broad question, and I'm going to do our best to give a little bit of an overview concept of a messiah as we understand it today is not part of the Torah or the Tanakh, as we call the the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew Bible. Um, When we look back to the texts in the Torah and in the Hebrew Bible, um, we see this word Mashiach, which is translated in English to Messiah. Um, But Mashiach really just means the anointed one. And it refers to the, a few number of Kings who literally were anointed with oil. That's how they, that was the ritual ceremony in which they became Kings. Um, and there, while this happened with many, um, religious figures in the Bible, including, um, priests, for example, there were only three individuals who were coined as, who were labeled as Mashiach in biblical text. And it was because, not because they were the Messiah, as I said, as, as we understand it, but because they were simply um, the anointed ones, the ones who were anointed with oil. And they were um, King Saul, King David, and interestingly enough, um, King Cyrus, who was not even Jewish. So we have three examples of Mashiach in biblical literature, um, one of whom was not even Jewish. And it wasn't until later on that references to what we understand Messiah to be today as more of a, for example, um, redeemer, as more of an individual, powerful figure. It wasn't until later on that those concepts were kind of um, retrojected back into the biblical texts. So we have examples that we look at in, let's say, Isaiah and Ezekiel, um, where it talks about someone rising up um, and being this kind of redeeming figure. And we look at those texts today and we say, oh, those are references to the Messiah. But at the time, um, they really were not. So um, we move then from biblical times to, uh, let's say, closer to the turn of the millennium, um, first century BCE and onwards, the Messiah started to creep into Jewish literature a little bit more. And when I say Jewish literature, I'm, I'm mainly referring more to to what was um, canonized as um, our Mishnah, our Talmud, later medieval texts. Um, these texts where the rabbis would 
discuss um, certain concepts really reflected an idea of a Messiah as possibly a person who would come back and step in and make the world better, make the world peaceful. Uh, there are definitely there are many different portrayals of what this type of figure might be. Um, this figure was a warrior. This figure was a savior. This figure was a Torah scholar, um, a judge, a redeemer, someone who brought peace. Um, so there are lots of different rabbinic references to um, to a figure like this, and also to what might bring about a figure like this. Um, and an idea that is very closely connected with a figure of a Messiah is a concept of what we call Olam Haba, the world to come. And this is a very idyllic world in which, again, there is peace. Um, the laws of nature are kind of turned upside down and animals that you wouldn't expect to coexist could coexist. And so this also crept into rabbinic literature and um, is very much intertwined with the idea of the Messiah. As history unfolded, there were certain times, and I think we'll get into this a little bit later, um, when people really felt like um, they needed a figure to look to, to believe in as someone who would redeem them in their lifetimes. And so there have been in, in Jewish thought and in Jewish history uh, several figures who rose up and either claimed this title of Messiah or were looked upon by others as a Messiah. Um, and it's very interesting to look at those figures in history and kind of what they did to their Jewish communities. But that is certainly a part of the evolution of this idea of, of Messiah throughout um the history of the Jewish people. And then um, in more modern times, that idea has changed a lot as well. And I'm sure we'll, I think we'll touch upon this a little bit later, but um, the idea has really transformed from a person, a figure who will redeem the Jewish people to more of a, um, a messianic age that is not olam haba, not something that is going to happen later on, um, but something that we can bring about um, by doing good in the world today. So there's been a lot of um, different iterations of this idea of Messiah in Jewish history, and um, I'm sure we'll get into some of those details. Wonderful. Um, one of the most fascinating theories I've heard about the writing of the Torah or the Hebrew scriptures was that the exiles in Babylon were reflecting on their homeland and their their history, and that either they had older texts or they were kind of developing um, a history that would give them hope in the midst of uh, persecution or enslavement. Uh, is there something about them projecting the the reigns of King David and Solomon onto the future? Uh, when you look at biblical um, books like the book of Daniel or others, uh, they they talk about this idyllic time where things are going to be so much better and there's going to be a, a theocracy that is going to help them achieve their, their national goals. Um, is is there something uh, behind that, that, that 
the, the concept of the Messiah in the early centuries was driven by this uh, projection on the future? Well, certainly with the exile, um, the, the initial exile after the first temple was destroyed and then the, the eventual um, ultimate exile um, after the second temple, um, I would say uh, incited this type of, or sparked this type of thought among um, Jewish communities and, and the rabbis who were creating these texts. Um, so there was this, for sure, this type of thought of um, a time when things might be better. Um, and there was also a, actually a category of literature that emerged um, that we call apocalyptic literature, um, which is a little bit different, but it's still related to this idea of talking about um, the end of days when something will happen and then things will get better. Um, and so Daniel was kind of on the, on the borderline of that. Um, but uh, there were also other books that didn't make it into the, what we refer to as the canon of, of um, the Hebrew Bible um, that very much did talk about those kinds of ideas. Um, and, and it was certainly a, a great hope that um, that the kingdom would be restored and the temple would be restored and that when all of this happened, um, it also might bring about this, um, this age of the, of the Messiah. So absolutely those, those um, biblical texts were, were a part of that um, and were influenced by the situation of the Jews at the time when they were um, in exile. So there's different figures who have claimed the title of Messiah. Uh, is it true that this usually happened when there was major Jewish persecution and that um, different figures were trying to either bring about um, an overthrow of the empires that were oppressing them, either physically or spiritually? Yes, absolutely. So um, I, I mentioned earlier that there have been figures throughout our history who have either claimed the title themselves or have been kind of given that title by the communities that they served. Um, and absolutely, it has often been a reflection of the time that they were living in. For example, um, early on in our history, um, Shimon Bar Kokhba is an example of that in the first century CE. Um, he was in Judea when the Romans took over and the Emperor Hadrian and um, times were tough for them. And um, he decided he wanted to lead a revolt and he did. And it was really incredible what he was able to do Um with the resources that he had for, it lasted for three years um, and eventually was not successful. But during that time, he gained quite a following, including Rabbi Akiva, who was one of our most celebrated Jewish um, rabbis and scholars, um, who gave him this name, Bar Kochba, which literally means son of a star. And that in itself is a messianic illusion. Um, and so actually later on, 
he was kind of looked down upon by the rabbis of the Talmud because he did claim to be, he, people did believe that he was the Messiah and he, he kind of rolled with that idea. And, um, the Talmud makes fun of him a little bit. Sometimes they refer to him as Bar Koziba instead of Bar Kochba, Koziba meaning liar. Um, so, so while there were figures that rose up and claimed to be Messiah overall, our history has not looked favorably on those characters. Um, another one much later in our history, 17th century, um, Turkey and other countries in Europe was Shabtai Tzvi, um, rose up also in a really bad time for Jewish people. Lots of pogroms happening in Eastern Europe during that time. And the people were looking for a redeemer, for someone who could, um, give them hope and promise in an era of real despair. And so, Shabtai Tzvi was also also served as that type of figure, and um, he declared himself the Messiah at age 20 and developed a really large following. Um, he threw a lot of traditions out the window and kind of um, made some major changes in Jewish um, observance and Jewish life, and some people really connected with that and others really did not. Um, eventually he, he really, um, overreached his, uh, he crossed a lot of boundaries and the Sultan had him arrested and forced to convert to Islam, which he did. And yet there were still people who believed in him so much that they also converted to Islam and became kind of these crypto Jewish Muslims and um, followed him even after his death. Um, so there are we have these examples of figures who rose up during times of hardship for the Jewish people, um, and there there is definitely a, a strong connection between those two factors. Some scholars would connect the messianism um, within the Jewish community as part of um, the many charismatic movements. Different religions have. Uh, leaders who are um, over-spiritualized or some people would even say fanaticized and they get their, their followers to, um, to go with them wherever they go. Um, what comes to mind in, the, in, the Jewish, in Jewish history is um, the group of the Essenes that went to Qumran, uh, some of the Sephardic Kabbalists that moved to Israel after the expulsion, and then um, the early Hasidism, uh, the early Hasidim when... Uh, with Baal Shem Tov and the legends about him, around him, um, is all this part of uh, this type of apocalyptic or um, desire for like a final redemption, a final age where all suffering and persecution are going to end? And does it have to do with that type of fervor, the religious fervor that gets people hyped up about uh, one of their leaders? To an extent, I would say yes, in the sense that. All of these people, you know, in the Jewish movements or the not Jewish moments, I'm sure, are, are looking for something to cling to, to give them answers, to give them hope, um, to give them direction. And there are points when those types of movements can get out of hand and, uh, and cross some boundaries. And I, and I think 
uh, with some of the examples you mentioned. I don't know if, um, you know, there, for example, Baal Shem Tov, yes, he was certainly controversial. Um, I think what he ultimately was doing was, was good and, um, and, you know, uh, I, I think that sometimes these movements, the leaders can lead the people in kind of dangerous ways or, or peaceful and productive ways. And that crosses, you know, religions and, uh, all kinds of, uh, groups of people and boundaries. I think, so I think to an extent, yes, um, when Jewish people were following the examples that you gave, um, they were, they were looking for something, but, um, as far as if we're talking about end of days or Messiah, I don't know if that was always, uh, such a direct connection. Related to that, um, you mentioned Sabbatai Zvi, there's also another, uh, figure, Jacob Frank, yes. and, um, Jay Michelson wrote a, his dissertation on, on Jacob Frank, and I know it's a very complicated thing, but, uh, um, so all these groups, um, one professor said that um, the Hasidim, um, you know, there's different groups of uh, Eastern European religious movements that they channeled all that energy or that fervor that had started with uh, the Sabbatarians up to Jacob Frank, and they turn it into something else. They turn it into a hopeful thing, a, a way for them to still have those aspirations, but become better people and try to, to help each other. Do you see that in your research? Yeah, and I think that's a little bit of what I was saying in the in my response to the last question about you know if if um, these leaders emerge and then you know how they channel their people if it's towards something productive and and peaceful and um, positive or it can be the opposite and um, I think certainly with um, Hasidism from what I know about it, and I'm certainly not an expert, but, um, you know, I think that there was a lot of emphasis on individual worship and devotion and passion and spirituality and, um, and the ability to attain that for oneself in one's lifetime, as opposed to waiting for it to happen later, or as opposed to just getting it from one um, leader. Of course, they had leaders, and we can talk about, um, you know, you mentioned Baal Shem Tov, and then in my more recent history, there's um, the Lubavitcher Rebbe um, Schneerson, who also many people have dubbed as the Messiah. Uh, so there are, there are these, and there's a lot of controversy around that. Um, there are these leaders, but, um, but I would definitely agree that um, I think with Hasidism, um, it has been channeled in, in, uh, in that emphasis was a, was a little bit of a shift, um, maybe from some of these other movements who were following leaders. In his book, uh, Messianic Speculations in Israel, Abba Hillel Silver quotes uh, medieval scholar Moses Alveda, who believes that the Messiah is tied to these, the biblical concepts of God's mercy, the vindication of God's name, and the promises made to the Jewish people of uh, redemption and deliverance, how does modern Judaism differ from this traditional view? Because for our audience who, who are not familiar with uh, some, of, some of these concepts, um, 
when people bring up um, su subjects like that, like redemption, um, theocratic kingdoms, um, God being involved in people's lives in, in a physical way, like in the Exodus, uh, people get kind of like, well, that's a lot of literary language or, or a lot of um, uh, speculation. But for some people, that's very real. And, and they want it uh, to happen in their lifetimes. So in modern Judaism, how, how do people rework these ideas to make them more contemporary and to, to give them hope in the conditions that we're in right now as compared to um, always um, waiting for someone or also um, just taking everything literally and, and expecting things uh, to happen? And, and I know that's been one of the challenges throughout history with different religious groups uh, being more um, holistic or more literal and, and fighting each other over tradition versus contemporary ways of, of looking at things? Great. Well, I think that's a really important question because I think that um, modern Judaism has really done a lot with the idea of the Messiah. So I'll give you a couple of examples of ways that some Jewish communities understand that concept today. Uh, and, it, and I think it really, the, the shift began um, in the late 19th century in uh, Germany, which is where the reform, the Jewish reform movement got its, um, got its start. Um, you know, Jews were emancipated in Germany and that was a, that was a huge um, uh, milestone and a huge shift from what life had been for centuries and centuries, and um, they were no longer seeking a personal Messiah in the same way that their ancestors had been for so many years. And um, a little bit later, but still late 19th century, when the movement had moved over to this country and, and they were forming their ideals and principles, one of the things that they stated was that they saw the promise of redemption in their own time. Um, they saw in their own freedom and opportunity this this promise, and they didn't need to believe in a traditional figure of, of Messiah anymore. So they shifted from a person to an idea. And this is reflected in liturgy changes that happened. For example, in a, a prayer that we say multiple times a day, um, the Amidah, the, the standing prayer, there's a line that talks about um, bringing a redeemer to our ancestors, to our children and our children's children. And the older version of that prayer says that we will bring that God will send a redeemer. Um, and and the reform movement changed that to um, that God will bring redemption to their children's children. So it's it's a in Hebrew, it's goel, redeemer, or geula, redemption. And in that small um, liturgical change, it really represented a big idea um, of, of how to understand the Messiah. Um, and others have taken from that shift and, and that um, change and reworked it a little bit into some other uh, associations with Messianism. For example, um, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel makes a connection between Messianism and Shabbat, the Sabbath, uh, 
and he says that um, when the Sabbath is entering the world, we are touched by a moment of actual redemption, as if the spirit of the Messiah has moved over the face of the earth for just a moment, and that Shabbat should be this taste of redemption. So it's another way, modern way of understanding um, this messianic idea. Um, Rabbi Jacob Staub has a piece waiting for the Messiah, and he he talks about how we're not waiting passively to be rescued. We're actually working actively to hasten the arrival of the messianic era by increasing peace and justice in this world. So another way that we can, you know, in response to your question, bring about that time for ourselves is by working towards peace and justice, doing good in our world and making it a better place. Um, and then, and, and to go along with that, there's a book which maybe you've heard of, I think it was a, pr a pretty popular book when it came out not that long ago, um, Rabbi Robert Levine, There is No Messiah and You're It, um, The Stunning Transformation of Judaism's Most Provocative Idea. So again, he says we're not, we're not waiting anymore. We need to be inspired by our tradition and by our um, values and guess what? There's no Messiah. It's you. It's us. It's all of us. Um, and that also is an idea that I think speaks to many modern Jewish people today in that really we have a responsibility to make the world better. And by doing so to bring about this idyllic messianic type age. Throughout Jewish history, there's been people who have traveled back to the land of Israel um, in hope to either bring about the Messiah or to be there to, uh, to create a independence and um, some type of um, Jewish uh, national state. Um, the example that I have is um, Menachem Mendel of, uh, maybe your Yiddish is better than mine, uh, and his followers, they moved to Palestine in 1777, hoping to experience the Messianic age. Um, what is the role of the state of Israel and political freedom for Jews as as a part of the fulfillment of this type of redemption of messianism and how do Americans Jews uh, deal with this type of Zionism? So uh, you bring up an important, an important point that um, another idea that messianism has been associated with over the years um, in modern, well, no, not really over the years of the existence of the Jewish people since the exile um, is messianism with uh, Zionism and um, some people certainly felt that by moving to, um, to the land um, when it was Palestine and are now moving to the land as the state of Israel, that um, they are helping to fulfill uh, re the redemption of the Jewish people. We actually have, um, again, in our liturgy, um, a phrase that we talk about um, kibbutz galuyot, the ingathering of the exiles, which is something that we pray for. Um, so it, it's an important question. What does that mean for us? And certainly also, what does it mean for us as American Jews saying those words, but knowing that we're not going to be moving to Israel um, in our lifetime? So um, certainly when the state of Israel was founded, uh, many believed that this was part of that 
bringing about that messianic age. Um, David Ben-Gurion in the early 20th century also said that his messianic vision was a striving towards the kingdom of God on earth and that this would happen by um, the founding of the state of Israel. But at the same time, what he taught was that this striving has no end. So we can come near to the kingdom of God, but we can never fully reach it. It's something that we will always be striving for. And I think that's one way of understanding um, the founding of the state of Israel is that it certainly has brought us closer to a messianic vision of um, a world for the, a, a safe place for the Jewish people. But at the same time, we're not done just because the state has founded, we, some has been founded. There's, we always need to be striving. Uh, we always need to be making it better. Certainly Israel, um, you know, there's, always um there's lots of issues around israel and israel is far from a, a perfect place and and needs to be better and so um you know i think that there is a very strong uh, connection between the idea of a messianic age <clears throat> and the state of israel um or just political freedom for for jews in general but um but we're not done we have a lot more striving to do what we're trying to do is trying to expand people's horizons and let them know that uh, there's a lot to learn and a lot to grow from. So we thank you for, again for being on the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for the opportunity.